you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Our text today is Exodus chapter 20, verse number 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. We are studying the Ten Commandments, the basis of the covenant and the laws given to Israel. The beginning, as we've seen, of the Ten Commandments is, in fact, the reality that God is the one who redeemed Israel. One commentary reminds us that all the commandments are constituted, are rooted in the first commandment. But the first three commandments are really strongly tied together. And in fact, as I've mentioned, uh, among Lutherans and Catholics, the first and the second have been combined uh, to make the first commandment. The first commandment is you shall not have any other gods. The second is you should not have any images. Don't corrupt your worship of God with images. And don't take, now in the third commandment, don't use God's name in vain. So I mentioned last week, these three commandments are three divine warnings against vain and shallow thoughts about God. The first commandment warns us against syncretism, that is mixing the worship of God with the worship of idols. This is vain thinking about God. The second commandment, which we looked at last week, warns us against reductionism, that somehow you can reduce God into something manageable, something that you can hold in one hand, something that you can manipulate. This is vain thinking about God as well. And then today, we will look at the third commandment, which is it forbids presumption. Don't speak rashly of God. It's vain to think that we can use God's name for whatever purpose that we want, failing to recognize who he truly is. The first five commandments have a reason why you're supposed to follow them. The first is that God is the one who delivered Israel out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall not have any other gods. Secondly, we're not to have graven images because our God is a jealous God. Today, God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Then the Lord willing, next week, the fourth commandment on the Sabbath is based in creation. And then the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that you may live long. There's the reason why you should. Last week, we looked at the second commandment, and it tells us that God is in control of history, not sin, not rebellion, not evil, not cause and effect, and not even history itself. God is the one who determines the extent and the effects of sin, and that's why it is to the third or fourth generation. And, you know, some people get very upset about this or fret. It's like, why, why does God allow this to happen? Well, you've given yourself the answer. God is the one who allows. He is the one who is in charge of human history and not our failures. And he's also the one who shows love and mercy to the thousand generations. We looked at the issue of idolatry and what is an idol. An idol is something within creation that is sort of blown up, that is inflated to the point that it takes the place of God. It becomes a substitute. And you need not be a pagan, an atheist, to have an idol. You can, in fact, be one who is a committed believer in God, who is a child of God, and still produce idols 
in your thinking or with your hands. Idolatry is a disobedience. Okay, let's be clear about that. Okay. It isn't necessarily a denial that God exists. It simply sort of pushes him aside so that something that is more important to us can take his place. At the conclusion of the sermon last Sunday, I mentioned an incident that happened in the wilderness which illustrates the danger of idolatry. It's found in Numbers chapter 21, and I want to review a bit and expand on this. Um, The Israelites spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. This miserable food, by the way, is manna that God miraculously provided for them throughout their time in the wilderness. The Lord was angry with them, and so he sent venomous snakes among them that bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. And when this happened, they went to Moses, and they're like, we have sinned. We've sinned against God and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed to God, and the Lord said, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone that is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, and indeed, anyone who was bitten by a poisonous snake who looked at that serpent would in fact not die, but would be cured. Paul mentions this incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. By the way, this was the last time that Israel ever complained about food, uh, about God not providing for them. After 40 years, they finally learned their lesson. And the really significant mention of this in the New Testament is found in John 3, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, who comes to him by night. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So the bronze serpent, or snake, on a pole was a prefiguring of the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross, being lifted up. But as I mentioned at the end of the sermon, there is one more mention of this serpent, and it's found in 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah, who's the 13th king of Judah, a righteous man who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, that's where they had set up these altars to false gods, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. These are fertility symbols. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Seven centuries later, this bronze serpent is still around and people are worshiping it. That which was provided by God, Moses made it, but God told him to do it, suddenly had become an idol and had been for seven centuries. It was called Nehushtan, and as I mentioned, we don't know if Hezekiah gave it that name because the name is just a piece of brass. It certainly sounds like something Nehushtan, who would de- uh, destroy it, would have called it. It had become an idol, a substitute for God. Instead of burning incense or worshiping God, they are worshiping his gift, which seven centuries earlier had been a means of being rescued from the poison of snake bite. Our praise, our worship, our adoration is to be directed to God alone. Nothing else, no one else, 
okay, regardless of their place in history, is worthy to be worshipped. Only God. And God is a jealous God. That means he cares. He cares that we do what we should do. After the service, I was asked about the snake, the serpent that Moses was instructed to make and raise on a pole. Why a snake? Okay. Ever since Eden, snakes or serpents have had a negative connotation. And it's one that continues into the New Testament. Uh, in Matthew 3, we read of John the Baptist and his ministry. He was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you bunch of snakes, what are you doing out here? And we might say, well, you know, John, he was sort of a wild man. Um, shouldn't be surprised that he was so intemperate in his speech. After all, he wore camel's hair, he had a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So it's sort of a wild man. We expect this speech from him. But two times in Matthew, Jesus uses the same language. In Matthew 12, verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? And then in chapter 23, where Jesus pronounces seven woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? So a really negative connotation. So why in the world would God have Moses make a snake basically as a form of salvation. If, you, if you've been bitten by a snake, you're going to die. But if you look to the bronze serpent that's on the pole, you won't die. Well, some have suggested that it comes from other cultures. Uh, the image, in fact, is still it marks physician's guilt. You, you may notice there's a pole and sometimes wings at the top and then it has two snakes that are intertwined. Um, this comes all the way from Sumeria, ancient civilization. Um, Codiceus in Greek mythology, the wand of Hermes is what you see, the pole with the two snakes intertwined. Uh, the Phoenicians, their god of healing was in fact a serpent. And in Egypt, people wore like little snakes, models of snakes, to keep them from being bitten by snakes. Um, that can't be why God commanded Moses, because in fact the serpent was not to prevent snake bite, but in fact to cure those who had been bitten by these poisonous snakes. So why a snake? Why a serpent? Um, I must confess, when I was asked this question, I didn't know the answer, and so I did some research came across a wonderful passage from one of the early reformers. Nothing would at first sight appear more unreasonable than that a brazen serpent should be made, the sight of which would eradicate the deadly poison. But this apparent absurdity was far better suited to render the grace of God conspicuous than if, as if there had been anything natural in the remedy. If the serpents had been immediately removed, 
they would have deemed to have been an accidental occurrence and that the evil vanished by natural causes. Yeah, they just went away. Okay. In order, therefore, that they might perceive themselves to be rescued from death by the mere grace of God alone, a mode of preservation was chosen so discordant, I would use the word jarring, with human reason as to almost be a subject for laughter. At the same time, it had the effect of trying the obedience of the people to prescribe a mode of seeking preservation, which brought all their senses into subjection and captivity. It was a foolish thing to turn the eyes to a serpent of brass to prevent the ill effects of the poisonous bite. For what, according to man's judgment, could a lifeless statue lifted up on a pole profit? But it is the peculiar virtue of faith that we should willingly be fools in order that we may learn to be wise only from the mouth of God. So when Jesus talks about the Son of Man being lifted up as the serpent was, he isn't simply saying, oh, he's going to be lifted up on a cross. You know, the serpent was put up on a pole and the Son of Man will be put on a cross. No. What he's saying is that in looking to the Son of Man being lifted up, one would find salvation and life. A thing that would seem so ridiculous. It is something we are so comfortable with all these years later to recognize that Jesus dying on a cross is the means of our salvation. But if we would step back a few steps and think about it, here's a man who died a criminal's death who died in such disgrace. And we're saying, if you look to him, you will have new life. We're used to it and we we accept that by faith. Well, the Israelites needed to learn the lesson of faith as well. That something that seemed ridiculous, are you kidding me? I'm gonna look at a snake and that's going to cure me of a snake bite? But there they were to learn obedience. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. And Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. To many, putting one's faith in a man who died on a cross as a criminal, it's just foolishness. It's foolishness. But it is the wisdom of God. Many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, uh, we used to have a midweek service, a Wednesday night service, and someone came in off the street and joined our our Bible study. And uh, 
seemed to be somewhat knowledgeable of scripture. And at a certain point, he said, um, you know, I need $10, I need to get a bus ride. And they're like, you know, we basically said, no, we're not gonna give you any money. And then he stood up and he said, you, and he, when he got to the back of the, the room, he said, you know, you people believe in someone who wasn't strong enough to get himself off the cross. And then he left. I think someone could say the same thing back in Moses' day. Really? You want us to look at that thing and that, that's what will cure us? That was God's plan. And they had to learn obedience and they had to learn to trust God. In the same way that we put our faith in the crucified Savior, they were to look to the bronze serpent. Okay. Now we come to the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. There's a really strong connection between the second and the third commandment. Uh, Lutherans and Catholics mix the first and the second. Um, I would say, no, if if you're going to mix any, it would be the second and the third. Because the second commandment deals with visual and physical representations of God. Don't make any images, okay? The third commandment focuses on verbal representations of God, using God's name in a way that you should not. But what does it mean to misuse the name of the Lord your God? Well, first of all, what are the names of God that we find in Scripture? In the Old Testament, we find a number of names in Hebrew. Uh, El, which is a singular. Elohim, which is the plural, which would be simply translated as God. And we find this used in a variety of names. Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. Israel, wrestles with God, with El. Uh, Elkanah, uh, Hannah's husband, means God has purchased. Elimelech, who is Naomi's husband, my God is king. And then Elijah, you have mixing El and, we'll see in a minute, Jehovah, my God is Jehovah. So there is El or Elohim. Then there's Yahweh or Jehovah. Jehovah is more what we find in the King James and the older translations, Yahweh and the more modern translations. It's made up of four consonants in Hebrew, therefore known as the tetragrammaton. Uh, They don't have vowels, they have to be supplied. So it's Y-H-W-H. This is the personal name of God. In chapter 3 of Exodus, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. This is the personal name of God. Whereas the word El or Elohim could be used of any deity, Baal or any other deity, a god. Um, Yahweh is God's name, his personal name. Then the third that we find in the Old Testament is Adonai, which means Lord. Um, And it usually speaks of a relationship, a Lord to a servant, so so Lord. But what we find, particularly in uh, English translations, is that if you see in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, so in fact, in verse number seven, uh, you shall not uh, misuse the name of the Lord, it's all caps, your God. They have put in Adonai 
instead of saying Jehovah or Yahweh, because the name of God was considered so sacred that instead of saying his name, you would simply say the Lord. There are other names uh, for God in the Old Testament. The Mighty One, El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Fear, which I find interesting. God is called the Fear of Isaac. Um, and Rock, and there are many other names. I mention all this because I suspect when we read the third commandment, um, our first thought is that misusing or taking the name of God in vain, we think of people cursing, that somehow they say, say God or Lord or something and they misuse it or they use it in the form of the curse, a curse. And there is that, but I think that is a fraction, that's a small part of what this commandment is all about. The place to begin for us is to recognize that God cannot be known in any other way except by revelation. He revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, and he revealed himself to Israel in the plagues in Egypt, and now they have come to Mount Sinai. And the very first commandment tells us, God is saying, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. So, lest the Israelites, or anybody else, including us, think or imagine that the word God denotes some kind of experience. I've had this experience, and yeah, I, I think I would call that God. No, he has a name. He has a personal name. Jehovah has revealed himself with his name. I think Many might imagine that God is whatever you want him to be, however you imagine him to be. No, God is someone who has revealed himself, and he has revealed his name as well. I mentioned before, Exodus comes before Sinai, redemption before the commandments, grace before law. And I would also add that God's revelation of himself comes before his giving of the commandments. God reveals himself through Moses to Israel, and then he gives them the commandments. In this third commandment, we find that if somehow you try to separate theology, that is, talk about God from ethics, obedience to God, or worship, the service of God, from morality, yeah, you violate this commandment. To be able to use God's name means we are morally obligated to obey him. We can't make God just any one or anything we want him to be. He has revealed himself. He is a God of grace in the first commandment. He brought them out of Egypt. He's a God who cares. We see this in the second commandment, that he is a God who is jealous. He claims a unique, a monogamous relationship with the people of Israel. A side note, but I think it's important. The desire for exclusivity might offend a lot of people in today's world. Exclusive relationship between God and his people. But this relationship, this exclusivity, opens him up to suffering. Not only to suffer with those whom he has created, but to suffer because of those he had created. 
One author has suggested that God's decision to allow a world damaged by corruption to continue rather than to destroy it completely necessitates his suffering. In other words, after Adam and Eve sinned, God could have said, okay, erase, erase, let's start all over again. He chose not to, and he opened himself up to suffering. It makes him vulnerable. It makes him the possibility of being exposed to abuse and grief. When another author has written, God is love. That is why he suffers. The tears of God are the meaning of history. So we have a moral obligation to obey this God who has revealed himself as I am who I am, the Almighty. And we have an ethical system. But let's, I th- I th- I've talked about the fact that people want to put the Ten Commandments in a courtroom. Yeah, that, that doesn't work because of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods, and not everyone believes in God. Okay? But our ethics are not rooted in the Ten Commandments. Our ethics are ro- rooted in, a fa- in the fact that we have met with this God. That he has revealed himself to us. And that we are called to worship him. Okay? Rather than attempting to be ethical, which brings up the whole issue of law versus grace, we need to realize and to embrace the reality that the law is good news. It is good news that God has graciously revealed himself and his way to us is through the law. He reveals himself to us. We are different from the Jews. Christianity is different from Judaism, not because we're opposed to the law. It's like, oh no, we believe in grace, not in law. No. But because we believe that Jesus is, he's the fulfillment of the promises of God and the law. It is somewhat disturbing that Christians have such a negative view of the law. Let me read to you from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making simple the wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But there's another danger that we need to avoid, to be aware of. We shouldn't think of the Ten Commandments as simply a list of do's and don'ts. These are the things you're supposed to do. These are the things that you're not supposed to do, that there are rules to be obeyed. The commandments of God are first about what kind of people we ought to be. What people should expect of us as being the people of God who are formed on the basis of the story of God and in the New Testament, the story of Jesus. The commandments remind us that it isn't so much about, oh, what ought I to do, but rather, who ought I to be now that God has invaded my life through the person of Jesus Christ. 
the issue of what we are to do only makes sense against the background of God's revelation. God has revealed himself. And now we are to obey him. This is the ethical system we are to live by. It is seen for us supremely in the person of Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't make a distinction between doing and being. Like I'm a Christian uh, or this is what I do. And somehow the two issues get separated. I've mentioned before, Jordan Peterson has asked, do you believe in God? And he, he really does not like that question because first of all, what is belief? And secondly, who is God? But the first one is he says he has met a lot of people who say they believe in God, but there is nothing in their life with, that would give evidence to that because belief and doing for them are two separate realities and that's not possible. To not take God's name in vain means that we are committed to do and to be his people and to do what he has commanded us. We are committed to speak truthfully to God, to ourselves, and to one another. On the other hand, blasphemy means to take God's name in vain, to drag his name through the mud of our sin. In a sermon on this commandment, one of the reformers, the early reformers, argued that we ought not simply to speak reverently about God, but also about all of his works, even the weather, which we seem to have had a bit of this weekend. He writes, when speaking of the weather, whether it is fair or rainy, we are nonetheless confronted by the marks of God's majesty. When he sends us bad weather, he reveals himself as judge to make us aware of his anger in order that we might examine our sins, grieve, and be led to repentance. If, instead of being humbled before God and displeased with having offended him, we are provoked as we commonly see others filled with contempt, is it not fitting that this weather should last a long time? And so we do not flee back to our God. We do not ask him to forgive our sins, and such is the case in everything else. Now one might say, boy, this guy's sort of like John the Baptist. I think he's gone a little bit too far to tell us not to complain about the weather. But could this, in fact, be an indication of how difficult it has become for us in the modern world to conceive of our lives as determined by God? We would prefer to see our lives as determined primarily, if not exclusively, by our decisions or the decisions of others. And yes, we say we believe in God. Yeah, but we don't. The second commandment about, you know, third, fourth generation, a thousand generations has slipped our minds. God is in control of history. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of your life and my life. Having imagined that we are creators rather than creatures, we live as though there is no creator. We're the ones who call the shots. And here we come to what is perhaps first comes to mind when people think of breaking the third commandment, that when someone curses and uses God's name or calls on God or uses God's name to damn something, to condemn something, yes, that is a misusing of God's name. But that is a small part of it. The second part of the commandment says that the Lord will not 
hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And while we might not realize it, this is good news. That God will not hold anyone guiltless. It means that we matter to God. What we say matters to God and what we do matters to him. When we lie and use his name to cover it up, swear to God, as some might say, we are in fact misusing it and God cares about this and he won't, he won't hold us guiltless. It's like, yeah, don't, no biggie, don't worry about it. He in fact does care. God is a God of truth and to speak a lie, whether we invoke his name or not, is to misuse his name and his character. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They sold a piece of property because everyone was selling property and giving it to the apostles so that no one would have any need. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the money for themselves, which they were allowed to do. There was no rule that said, hey, you have to give all of your, your proceeds to the apostles. But if you know the story, they both died. God killed them and it is Peter who confronts Ananias first and then Sapphira later. And what was the issue? Oh, you greedy people, you materialistic people, you're holding on to money. No, it's that they lied. It was that they lied. Just imagine what the population would look like if God killed everyone who lied. If God killed, let's say, not the whole population, just the church of people who lied. The third commandment calls for us to be simple in our speech, which means we do not misuse the name of the Lord. So I said at the beginning, the third warning we have is presumption. Don't presume to use God's name, invoke his name, to cover up whatever it is that we are doing. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep your oaths you had made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. By the way, this ties in with what the reformer said about complaining about the weather. Um, listen, this is his footstool. You know, don't swear by it. God's creation is, is in fact important. But why does God care so much about our speech, what we say? Well, several things come to mind, but the first is that God is a speaking God. In the beginning, he spoke and creation came into being. Let there be light and there was light. In instructing Adam, giving him commandments, what he was to do. In communing with him. In questioning Adam, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? In judging them and then exiling them. But even when Adam and Eve sinned, and there's this chasm now between God and those made in his image, God reveals himself by speaking. The Old Testament is a record not only of God acting, but of God speaking. And in the New Testament, Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is referred to as the Word. 
The Bible is called the Word of God. It is a written verbal communication from God. Verbal communication is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because we have the ability to communicate, it is a sign that we are made in God's image. And so God cares about what comes out of our mouth. There are other forms of communication, nonverbal, for example. And that's why the third commandment isn't simply limited to what comes out of your mouth, but in our being, in our doing, in how we act. By the way, God does speak. He has spoken through the prophets in his word. He revealed himself speaking. But all of creation is also God speaking in nonverbal ways and revealing his glory. We are to be people who speak the truth. God is truthful. We are to be truthful. The second reason is that God is holy. And as I said, he speaks the truth. Hebrews 6.18, interesting verse. It is impossible for God to lie. Did, did we need to be told that? Did, did we not, in fact, know that already? Well, in case we didn't, we are told it is impossible for God to lie. And if we are his people, then we are to be people who do not lie. We are to be people who speak the truth. We are not to misuse his name. I remember hearing someone say some years ago that he believed that the third commandment was broken more in churches on Sunday than it was in bars. You know, we think in bars people are just using profane language and say, it's like, no, I think God's name is taken in vain, is misused oftentimes in church far more than it is among pagans. It is vanity for us to think that we can use God's name to cover over whatever it is that we want to get done. It's presumption. We are not to misuse the name of the Lord our God. Do you remember how the Lord's Prayer begins? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you ask the average person today what hallowed means, if they know, it probably comes because they know the Lord's Prayer. Um, In fact, we're coming up on Halloween, which is all hallowed Eve. Um, But what does it mean? It means to make holy or to honor as holy. The phrase, hallowed be your name, is an acknowledgement of God's character. And I've argued that this, in fact, is a positive stating of the third commandment. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Hallowed be your name is a positive response. How does Jesus intend for us to take this? We looked at this when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We have three choices grammatically, okay? First of all, the indicative, a statement of fact. Your name is hallowed, okay? The second is the subjunctive, which is a statement of desire or wish. If only your name were hallowed, or may your name be hallowed. The third is the imperative. It's a command. Make your name hallowed. If I were to ask you, I think we might say, yeah, it's a statement of fact. Your name is is holy. It's hallowed. Or we might say, may your name be Please be holy, you know, be hallowed. May people respect your name. 
The reality is it's an imperative. It is a command. Make your name holy. Make your name hallowed. What does Jesus have in mind here? Of whom are we making this demand? Well, our Father in heaven. Okay? And as we've seen with the matter of prayer, God initiates the conversation. We respond to him in prayer. So it is God who tells us his name is holy. And in prayer, we respond with a command, the imperative, your name be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Well, if his name is holy, who are we to command God in the imperative to say, make your name hallowed? How does that even happen? I would suggest that his name is made holy by our living, in our living. In the same way, we may misuse the name of the Lord in our living. It isn't simply what comes out of our mouth but in our living. The second commandment, as I said, deals with visual, physical representations of God. Don't make any idols, okay? Any graven images. The third commandment focuses on verbal presentations of God. In our speech, in our actions, we are representing God. And how are we doing that? Are we doing it as we should, or are we misusing the name of the Lord our God? We who are called his people are to be like him. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. This is what the third commandment is all about. Let's pray together. Our Father, in our fallenness, in our humanness, in our self-centeredness, we have tried to reduce your commandments to bare minimum. As long as we don't swear, as long as we don't take your name in vain by cursing, we've, we've obeyed this third commandment. And I failed to recognize the fullness of it, that it is in our living that we may in fact misuse your name. But by your grace, it is also in our living that we may make your name holy and hallowed. We who are called by your name are to live as you have instructed us. But that life begins with meeting you, with you revealing yourself to us through the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We've talked about a lot of things today, but I pray that by your Spirit, it would find root in our hearts, that in the days to come, you would call them back to our memory as we think on them and meditate on them. And by your grace, we as your people, may we not misuse your name. I thank you for bringing us together today that we could speak to one another we could pray for needs rejoice in news from others but above all we have come to worship you the source of all things 
holy God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.